0: I'd like to just share with you some things out of the Word of God uh, this morning from Galatians chapter 6. And um, I don't think I'm going to stretch your intellect a whole lot this morning, but I do want to remind you of some things that are very basic. I am more and more impressed with the fact that our culture wants to divorce itself from any moral absolutes. When you go back to the 60s, the cry in the 60s was free love. It was part of the hippie movement. And the big thing was free love, free sex. But there was a lot more to it than that. We, we think about the sexual revolution of the 60s. We think about the cry for free love. But what really was going on well, was a cry for free everything. Uh, it was really a movement away from any kind of moral values, any kind of absolutes at all, where you were just left with absolutely nothing but whatever you wanted to do. It was kind of a, the byword of the time, do your own thing. If it feels good, do it. And all that kind of stuff reflected a totally and utterly hedonistic philosophy uh, where nothing was sacred, nothing was standard, nothing was demanded, nothing was required, and certainly nothing was right. Everything was relative, and you do whatever you want to do, and out of the 60s has come the culture of today, where there is no absolute uh, for any kind of behavior except what somebody else gets upset about and sues you for. So if you can just wind your way through the world doing whatever you want and avoid a lawsuit, you've sort of lived up to the morality of our time. This flies in the face of everything we know about the universe in which we live. The universe in which we live, from a physical standpoint, is governed by absolutely fixed laws. We we live and move and have our being because of fixed laws, laws that touch every aspect of the physical world, whether you're talking about astronomy and all the related studies of astronomy and mathematics, which is uh, how we calculate everything we calculate with regard to whatever we do in space, all operates on the basis of inviolable fixed laws that always act the same way at all times. Whether you're talking about agronomy or whether you're talking about uh, any related field to that by which we determine uh, food supply and everything else and, and uh, protect the health of our society, it's all based on fixed laws that operate the same all the time. You're talking about uh, physiology. We function as human beings based upon absolutely fixed laws, which violated will cause our illness or even our death. And you can carry that through biology, botany, zoology, and everywhere else. In every dimension of physical life, the whole universe is controlled by absolutely fixed and, and inviolable laws. And when they are violated, the consequences are severe very often simple illustration of the law of gravity would uh, make that point. You can stand on the top of a building and whether you believe in the law or not, jump and you'll go down. It isn't a question of what you believe. It isn't a question of whether you like absolutes or not. They function. And the Creator who made the physical realm is the same Creator who created the spiritual world, which is as real as the physical. Why would we assume that a God who has created a universe, a physical universe of absolutely fixed laws, would create a spiritual universe with no rules at all? That is contrary to everything we know about God. And just as there are physical laws, there are absolutes within the realm of the spiritual world, and they govern ...moral life and moral behavior, and you cannot violate those laws without having the same kind of consequences, only even more severe, because they kill the soul than you have in the physical realm. That's why Jesus said, "...fear not those who destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell." The one to fear is the God of spiritual order, the God of moral order, and in the moral and spiritual realm, the absolutes are fixed. And fortunately for us, by God's grace, they're not only fixed, but they're revealed. In the physical world, frankly, it's a matter of trial and error. Uh, The first guy who jumped off a cliff and discovered the law of gravity paid a high price. We don't need to jump off a cliff morally. We don't need to jump off a cliff in terms of the spiritual dimension because we have a cogent, comprehensible revelation from God called the Bible which outlines for us the consequences of moral misbehavior and spiritual misconduct. Only fools and wicked sinners demand to violate moral and spiritual laws and then get very upset when they have to face the consequences. To assume that there are no moral laws is to contradict the essential nature of everything we know about the universe, which tells us what we need to know about its creator. If God is a God of order in the physical realm, he will be a God of order in the spiritual realm, and the Bible reveals that to be absolutely the case. We could even say that moral order... Moral absolutes are axiomatic, an, an axiom, in case you haven't uh, gotten to that word in your dictionary, an axiom is a self-evident truth that doesn't need proof. It can be self-evident purely by observation, self-evident purely by experience, and it is axiomatic that we live in a world of order in which laws violated bring about consequences. All of our experience confirms that. Everything we know about life confirms that. Hold your breath for a while and see what happens. From the simplest act of breathing to those kinds of complex moral acts in our lives, God has structured the whole universe with laws to govern everything. Now, it's with that in mind as a sort of a philosophical framework that I want you to look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 7, 8, and 9. And here is one of the most primary one of the most basic things that everybody needs to learn. And I would hate to think that you got through your college education at the master's college and really didn't have a grip on this foundational law. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. Now, in looking at that brief text, we come to the foundation of this whole idea of moral law. It is, first of all, stated in the words, whatever you sow you reap there in verse 7. That is the foundational law. We can say that's the divine law stated. And that verse begins with a couple of warnings, really. The first one is be not deceived. Don't let anybody tell you there are no consequences to the way you live. Don't let anybody tell you that you can do whatever you want and you're not going to have to pay for it. Don't be deceived. And, of course, we could get into the whole picture here in the Galatian area where uh, there was deception going on. Back in chapter 3, we are introduced at least to a point of it. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The Galatians had fallen to deception. They had been beguiled and bewitched in the spiritual realm by some false teachers who were telling them they could abandon the things that Paul had taught them, Follow lies, and in fact, there would be no serious consequences. Don't be deceived. And by the way, the word deceive is an interesting word. It is a secondary sense of the Greek verb planao, from which we get the word planet. And the verb planao means to wander. It came to mean, as a secondary significance, to be led astray or to be deceived. To wander away from truth, to wander away from Reality to wander away, if you want to use a clinical term, from sanity. We are so easily deceived. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart of man is deceitful above all things. I mean, beyond anything else, we have deceptive hearts. And you say, Well, isn't he talking about non-believers? Yes, but he's also talking about believers because we are still in a fallen condition. And our hearts can deceive us as well. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 says, Even when I know nothing against myself, herein am I not justified. In other words, when I've done an inventory on my own life and I can't find anything wrong, that is still no reason to assume that I am justified because my own heart is so deceptive. My own heart is biased in favor of myself. My own heart is self-protective. My own heart tends to cherish certain sins and ride over them, somehow softening their significance for my own benefit. So we can easily be deceived. We can also be deceived by false teachers. And that's why in Matthew chapter 24, the Bible says that Jesus is going to come and shorten the time of the tribulation so that the elect do not become deceived. If uh, if we were left to our own, even though we are the elect and we are the redeemed, we would fall to deception. That's why we have to be kept from falling. You understand that? It is God and Jude who is able to keep you from falling. Even though regenerate, left to ourselves, we would be deceived and fall. That's why Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and I will lose none of them. That's why it says that we are kept by his power. We are, as it were, hidden with Christ. Because otherwise we would fall victim to deception. Such deception, I think, of course, is in the mind of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to two verses here. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Don't let anybody deceive you about who is really going to be in the kingdom. Don't be deceived about that. Don't be deceived about the fact that somehow you can become a Christian and live any way you want to live. That is indeed a deception. There are other illustrations, and I won't beg the issue, but just to give you a few suggestions. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14, it says that we are to grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ so that we are no longer children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Even believers who are still infantile, immature, and childish can be deceived and led astray by the schemes of Satan. Over in chapter 5 of Ephesians, let no one deceive you, verse 6, with empty words. Don't be deceived. Over and over and over, the Bible talks about not being deceived. Don't be deceived. And yet all around us, the attempt is being made by Satan, by the system we live in, by false teachers, to deceive us. And it says in 2 Timothy 3.13, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. What does that mean? Well... In the difficult times, the end times, the times in which we live, deception will increase and increase and increase and increase and increase. So we, li- we live in a very dangerous time. That's why verse 1 of that same chapter says, in the last days, dangerous epochs will come. We are living in very dangerous times because deception is rampant. doesn't matter where I go in the world. The church is battling to protect its people from being deceived. Satan is a deceiver. And so the warning then is a very good warning and a very important one and it calls us to discernment. Do not be deceived. And then it adds a second statement which is equally important. God is not mocked. What does that mean? God is not outwitted. God is not fooled. You can't beat the system. God is going to get you, is what it's saying. You're not going to mock Him. You're not going to violate His laws and violate His standards and walk away unscathed. It isn't that way. I remember uh, when I was young, um, Sinclair Lewis, who was the toast of the literary world at that time, who was a great, brilliant novelist, wrote a novel called Elmer Gantry and uh it was made into a movie starring bert lancaster and it was a very famous movie because elmer gantry was a tent evangelist and uh he was it was a story that was really playing off the early days of people like oral roberts and a a allen who were who were carrying carnival tents across america and doing healings And, of course, the barnstorming healers weren't necessarily the paragons of American virtue, to say nothing of biblical virtue. So Sinclair Lewis wrote this novel called Elmer Gantry, which was a story about a drunken, uh, lecherous, lascivious uh, evangelist who pushed himself off as a healer and really engaged himself with prostitutes regularly, and he was a horrible person. And that was Sinclair Lewis's diatribe on Christianity. That was his way to strike God in the face. He was toasted as the, you know, the great author of his time, a brilliant genius. Few people know, however, that he died an alcoholic in a third-rate clinic somewhere outside of Rome in absolute obscurity because God is not mocked. The other great literary genius of his time was a man named Ernest Hemingway who also was brilliant when it comes to the literary side, but defied God blatantly and overtly and lambasted Victorian morality and biblical standards and said uh, in print that he would live his life any way he wanted, tumbling women, killing people, fighting in revolutions, etc., etc., and nobody was going to impose biblical morality on him. And then one day he took a shotgun in his home here in the United States, put it in his mouth, and blew the back of his head off because God is not mocked you don't beat that system he is not fooled, and he is not outwitted any more than you jump off a 10-story building without a parachute and beat the law of gravity don't be deceived you can't outwit god and then comes the principle the principle very simple in verse 7 whatever a man sows this he will also reap no one is going to sneer at the law of God and walk away. doesn't work that way any more than a man who violates physical law gets by with no consequence. God will not be ridiculed. He will not be ignored. He will not be mocked. And that's why we have venereal disease in the society in which we live. That's why we have the terrible crime we have among young people because the law that God has established for normal family life and physical relationship within marriage has been so totally violated the consequences are all over the place ripping and shredding our culture to bits because you cannot sow one thing and reap another this is a divine principle it is the foundational principle of moral conduct you can't beat the system it is absolutely ridiculous to fight God you're gonna lose in the end. And the simple principle here is that the harvest is determined by what you plant. You can't plant one thing and get something else. If you want wheat, you don't plant strawberries. You plant and you get. That's it. The law is true in the physical world, and that's exactly what is true in the spiritual world as well. The fruit of your life is going to be determined by what you plant. And young people, at this particular time, you're in a planting season of your life. And the character which will be your character through your life is being planted now. And you're not going to plant one thing now and harvest something else in the future. That's both a warning and that's a comfort, isn't it? If you're planting sin, it's a warning. If you're planting righteousness, it's a comfort. A child foolishly indulged, a young person foolishly encouraged to think only of his or her own whims and wishes may be real cute when they're small, but the obstinate, stubborn, sullen, self-centered, and undisciplined adult is tragic. One English writer put the law In its moral sense in these words, and I quote, What strikes me more and more each day is the permanence of one's early life. The identity between youth and adulthood. Every habit, good and bad, of those early years seems to have permanently affected my whole life. And then he said this, the battle is largely won or lost before it seems to begin. You're winning or losing the battle of life before it even starts. And right now is before it even starts. Only, only the power of God in your life can assure the future joy and fulfillment that God would desire for you. That's the principle, the divinely designed principle. And as I said, for those of you who are sowing the right seeds, this is comforting. For those of you who are not, it's frightening, because you're going to be the product of what you've sown. I mean, just being a Christian doesn't guarantee that you're going to be a certain kind of person in the future. Salvation doesn't stop someone from getting cancer because they're exposed to radiation. Uh, salvation doesn't uh, stop a Christian from having his teeth knocked out if he runs into somebody's fist. Salvation doesn't stop a Christian from getting venereal disease because he or she engages in sexual misconduct. Being a Christian is not in and of itself gonna so- solve the problem because the law, the spiritual laws are still gonna operate. The Greeks believed in Nemesis. You've heard the word Nemesis. We say the word Nemesis when we refer to an enemy. But Nemesis was a, was a God in the Greek system. And the Greeks believed that when a young person did something wrong, Immediately, the god Nemesis was on his trail. And sooner or later, Nemesis would catch him. And that was the Greek mythological way to describe the law of sowing and reaping. They knew there was that kind of law. That's why they developed that kind of mythology. They knew that when you did things that were wrong, there were consequences, and they named it Nemesis. And though we are forgiven, and though God is gracious and wipes out the consequence of our sin, the law still works. We won't pay eternally, but we'll pay temporally in this life, and in a sense eternally, because we'll forfeit our eternal reward to some degree. So the law is stated in verse 7, and in verse 8 it is explained. Let's look at verse 8. And here's this simple delineation of what the law means for the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the spirit shall from the spirit reap eternal life two fields you can sow in you can sow in the flesh or you can sow in the spirit sowing to the flesh what does that mean? gratifying your desires gratifying the cravings for sin the flesh is the contact point for sin And if you decide that you're going to sow in that field, you're going to reap, and you're going to reap decay and degeneration and corruption, a sad and tragic life. John Stott wrote a number of years ago, Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fancy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying every time we read pornographic literature every time we take a risk that strains our self-control we are sowing 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 to the flesh and the harvest is unholiness and that's So basic, some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they don't reap virtue and why they don't reap holiness and why they don't reap blessing and happiness and peace. Listen, holiness is a harvest sown to the spirit, not the flesh. Great literary genius poet Lord Byron. Who used to fascinate me in my youth. I, I used to write a lot of poetry. I loved poets. I loved the, the musings of poets. And he was one of my favorites. He spent his whole life sowing to the flesh, sadly. And he knew what his harvest would be. And this is what he wrote. My days are in the yellow leaf. My soul is sore with sullen grief. It is as if the dead could feel the icy worm round them steal and shudder as the reptiles creep to revel o'er their rotting sleep without the power to scare away the cold consumers of their day. And that's how he viewed his own death, because he spent his life sowing to the flesh. And then there was Oscar Wilde, who also used to fascinate me, and, and was a secret homosexual. And eventually it caught up with him, and his life was debauched, and he was dishonored, and he was defamed. And he made this telling statement. He said, I forgot that what man does in secret, he will one day shout from the housetops. There is another field, and that is to sow to the Spirit. And in verse 8 he says, the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. All the goodness that is wrapped up in the life of God is the fruit of the one who sows to the Spirit, who you could say walks in the Spirit, you could say is filled with the Spirit, Uh, you could say is um, richly indwelt by the Word of God, is Christ conscious, lives a life of prayer and devotion. It does not depart from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. Any of those things are the same. Those of, uh, of you, all of us, who are committed to Christ, who choose the course of conduct that fulfills the will of the Spirit, are sowing to the Spirit, and we will reap the richness of all that eternal life can bring. And, and by eternal life, he doesn't mean a, a quantity of life. He means a quality of life. A different kind of life than the corruption that comes for sowing to the, to the flesh. Every day will be the richness of that life, which is the life of God. So you make choices. To what will you sow? Best to decide, because that's what you'll reap. And then the last point in verse 9, you saw the law given and then defined. And then in verse 9, the law fulfilled and let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. There's a little catch here. Somebody's going to say, you know, I've been doing good. I've been trying to sow to the Spirit, and uh, things aren't working out too good. You know, I've been doing my devotions. I've been spending time in prayer. I've been serving the Lord. I've been faithful to worship Him and honor Him. Not perfect, but I'm really working at it. And, um, I'm, I'm not doing too well on my tests, And uh, my schoolwork doesn't seem to be going that hot i got some personal problems so My girlfriend dumped me and, and did it for some wimpy guy You know I mean, what's going on here? It's not all working out Or, you know, I, I, I went for the certain scholarship in the department And I'm doing my devotions And I'm, I'm loving the Lord And I'm, I'm trying to do the things I should be And I didn't get the scholarship Or I got cut from the basketball team Or, I mean, what's the deal here? When does, this, uh, when does this harvest deal start? Well, verse 9 is, is just to help you with that kind of thinking. Don't lose heart in doing good. In due time, you'll reap. Just keep it up. Just keep it up. John Brown, the last of the great Scottish Puritans, said, Christians frequently act like children in reference to the harvest. He said they would sow and reap in the same day. That's not how it goes. And some of you are saying, boy, I've been sowing a long time. When's this harvest going to happen? It's going to happen. Don't grow weary. Don't run out of steam. Just keep doing what's right. Keep doing what honors God. And in His good time, the harvest will come in. It really will. If you don't faint. You see, ultimately the harvest is based on sowing faithfully over the long haul. It's not a deal where you can say, Hey, I'm going to give this a try this week. In fact, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm going to sow to the Spirit. This baby better cash in on Friday. Not going to happen. You've got to be patient, faithful over the long haul. Well, the whole universe is built on God's laws. What you sow is what you reap. Life's a long time. Take it from somebody who's been around for 55 years. I look back in my youth and I don't like everything I see. But I thank God that somewhere through those early years of my life, seed was sown to the spirit. And now the richness of my life and the blessing of God in my life and my marriage and my home and my family and the privileges that are mine in serving the Lord Jesus Christ and the joys of all that God has brought into my life. I'm so glad for those early years. And one thought in closing. Some of you are going to say, well, you know, I didn't come from a Christian background. My past is full of sowing to the flesh. Well, salvation does give you a complete breach in that pattern. And you start all over as a new creation. Be with Paul when he said, forgetting those things which are behind. Let that go. Start now to sow to the Spirit. Some of you are going to say, well, I, I've been a Christian, but I've I really been sowing to the flesh. Uh, are, the, are the seeds going to come back? Yeah, there's real possibility they may. But you can stop sowing them now. You can overpower that bad seed with the good seed. Time is now. And do it faithfully. And you'll reap all the reward of your faithfulness to the Lord. Father, we do thank you for the fact that we don't have to live in the dark. We don't have to wonder what's right. You've given us your word. I thank you for these young people, every one of them. And God, I pray that they would sow to the spirit, whatever the past, whatever part of that harvest has to come because we've sown to the flesh. Lord, may it just it just be a small portion And now, before life really begins in all its fullness, before the harvest comes, help us to begin now to sow to the Spirit, so that we can reap the things that have eternal value. Forgive us, Lord, for the sowings to the flesh. Minimize that harvest, and maximize that harvest. Sown to the Spirit. So that you can be glorified. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.